0: of God's word in 2nd Chronicles chapter 3 as father we just come and we desire to hear your word to be blessed as we look at the temple being uh, built and um, we want to make application here tonight for us we're so thankful that um, it's a living temple that's being built today and so Lord uh, help us to be attentive I know that we come into tonight study on a Wednesday night um, perhaps a long day Working all day, I know that some came directly from work, and uh, so um, just help us to keep our our eyes and our ears open right now as we spend a few minutes in the scriptures and uh, just encourage and and edify and build us up right now as we read the passage in Second Chronicles chapters three and four, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, Amen. So we know that Solomon at this time in our study is is been charged to build the temple. As we're going through 1 Chronicles, we talked a lot about David, uh, Solomon's father, who was told that he was not going to build the temple, but David, your son Solomon, is. And so David would make preparations for the temple, the materials and getting the Levites and the priests all organized. So when Solomon would come on the throne, things would be in place, um, and he could begin to build the temple. And as we saw last week, that Solomon, he was... Determined to build the temple. In other words, the charge was given to him by his father David. He would take that uh, responsibility that was given to him, the calling of God in his life, to be the king of Israel, uh, to sit on the throne after his father David. And Solomon was one, as the Lord appeared to him, as we move into 2 Chronicles, the Lord asked Solomon, Solomon, what do you want? What can I do for you? And Solomon said that, Lord, I, I don't know my coming in and going out. I'm young. I'm inexperienced. Experience, I need wisdom. And I think that that is such an incredible, powerful prayer for all of us that we ask for God's wisdom in our lives. And I want us to remember. That God's wisdom is not just knowing, you know, um, the Word of God in our head, but it's knowing the Word of God in our head, having it in our hearts and having it worked out in our lives, applying it in our lives. Because I've known people that they've known the Word of God, They, they know what the Scripture says, but they don't apply it in their lives, and they can live in very foolish ways, they can make foolish decisions. So Solomon was one that asked for God's wisdom, and the Lord was pleased at that. And, of course, Solomon is ruling during this time during Israel's greatest blessing and greatest prosperity and greatest power. And one of the things I want you to kind of tuck in the back of your mind is, we're going through chapters 2 and 3, and we'll continue over the next few chapters, how God is blessing the nation, how there's gladness of heart. The Lord is really working. And then what we're going to see as we continue through Second Chronicles, it's going to go from great and glorious and marvelous to starting to get bad. And division comes in, and it gets difficult, and it goes from bad to worse, to eventually they go into captivity. And I think there are such powerful lessons for us um, that we need to take heed to as we go through these chapters. But right now, as we open up chapter 3, we read that Solomon, as he's building the temple, began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, and of course, we uh, would read in First Chronicles, chapter twenty, I believe, is where David. You remember he counted the people, and we went over that. Actually, it was chapter twenty-one of First Chronicles that, as he was counting the people, he wasn't uh, just seeing how many people were in Israel; he was counting the soldiers he became prideful, David, at that time that he did that. And he was warned by his military leaders, Joab and, and the captains of uh, that were in his army, don't do this, David. Why are you taking this census? And he was counting his, his men over 20 years of age, his soldiers, so he could see how strong he was, how powerful he was. And he had forgotten that Uh, as the Lord had blessed David and given him victory over his enemies it was because of the Lord it wasn't because of the strength of his army it wasn't because of the numbers it wasn't because um, you you know his great military uh, strategy and all of this David was a great warrior certainly but the Lord had blessed David and anointed David and given them victory their strength was in the Lord and David forgot about that so as a plague would go through Jerusalem David would realize that he had sinned before the Lord. And you recall that he went to Ornan, the Jebusite. And remember that uh, where Jerusalem is, that before David overtook Jerusalem, where Mount Moriah is, that it was uh, occupied by the Jebusites. So Ornan is there, and David would buy the threshing floor from him, as we saw in 1 Chronicles, and David would sacrifice there at the threshing floor. The Lord accepted that sacrifice, and David knew that that's where the temple was going to be. That's where they would do sacrifices, because the Lord told the children of Israel, when you come into the promised land I don't want you to be like the Canaanites and just sacrifice anywhere up on the high hills and in the wooden groves Uh, I want to designate a place for you to sacrifice and of course the tabernacle that was out there in the wilderness would come into the promised land and it was at Gilgal for a while then it was at Shiloh for a few hundred years at this time before the temple was built it was at Gibeah as we have seen that's where Solomon was making sacrifices when the Lord appeared to him the first time. And and there, that's where the sacrifices were to be done. So when the Lord accepted the sacrifice that David did there at Ornan, the Jebusite, he knew this is the place, is where going to be the permanent structure for the temple. So the writer of Chronicles is letting us know they're there on Mount Moriah. And as we ended last week, that Mount Moriah is where the old city of Jerusalem was built. And um, you can stand on the Mount of Olives today. You can look at the old city of Jerusalem. You can see where the Temple Mount is today. And as you look at it today, and I think, most of you you've seen pictures of the old city of jerusalem and as you looked at it there's a golden dome there that's a Muslim site it's a Muslim mosque that is there the the mosque of omar uh, the dome of the rock and it sits there um, on the temple mount and the temple mount is 35 acres it's the most disputed piece of real estate in the whole world we don't have time to go in tonight to talk about it But you're going to see it come up in the news, especially with the talks between the Palestinians and um, Israel as they're having their peace talks. But uh, suffice it to say tonight, as you look at the Temple Mount, that's where the first um, temple was built, Solomon's Temple, on that mount. And then also the second temple was built as well. And you recall that last week we kind of went over very quickly that when you read in the Scriptures about the temples, that are in the scripture, there are four temples that are mentioned. Two of them have come and go the first and second temple. The second temple was standing at the time of Jesus when he was ministering, and that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. We know that there hasn't been a temple in Jerusalem for 2,000 years, but they are preparing for another temple that will come that is called the Tribulation Temple that um, is going to exist um, during the tribulation period. And that's where the Antichrist will go into that temple and he will desecrate that temple. Then there is uh, that temple that will be destroyed when Jesus Christ comes back to establish his kingdom. And then there's a millennium uh, temple that is spoken of in the book of Ezekiel in, in chapters 40 to the end of the book. But we also know that there's actually a fifth temple that is being constructed. And I don't know if that's a good word. um, A temple that is being built, and that is a living temple. That's you and me, living stones that are being put together, fitted together. And that's what we talked about. Uh, We are the temple of God corporately, and uh, we are um, part of that living temple um, that God has been building for 2,000 years. And it's a glorious temple. It's a glorious thing, the thing called the church that God has put together and built, and we need to always remember that. So here on Mount Moriah, and the reason that this living temple can come together is because on Mount Moriah, they would do the sacrifices, as we're going to read about the temple being built um, out there in the outer court where the the altar was, but also we know that on that hill, that mountain, Mount Moriah, That Jesus, he would take a cross and he would walk down the narrow streets of Jerusalem and he would go to the top of Mount Moriah that was called Golgotha at that time in the Hebrew tongue. It was called the place of the skull, Calvary, and he died for you and for me on Calvary's cross. And he would die for the sins of the world. He he would die for, for us so that we can have forgiveness of sin. We can come into right relationship with the Father and that we can have the hope of heaven and we can be a part of this living temple that's being built. So Mount Moriah is a very special place as you go to Jerusalem today. And here, uh, of course, the temple, the first temple, Solomon's temple, being built on Mount Moriah in verse 2. He began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. Now, scholars tell us that the work of the temple would begin now in about 967 B.C., It's about 480 years after the exodus. Many of those years were spent during the the days of the judges, about 400 years of this vicious cycle of disobedience to the Lord and calling out to the Lord. But then David would become king shortly after Saul, you know, was um, disqualified as king and rejected by the Lord. And it's a time now of prosperity and peace. But all these years after they come into the promised land under the leadership of of Joshua, finally the temple is being built. And it's interesting that it tells us, as you take note here in verse 2, he began to build in the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. Now when you stop and you think about that, Solomon was charged to build the temple, as we talked about when we opened up the study. In chapter 2, he was determined to build the temple. David had the materials, you know, a lot of it ready to go. The plans were drawn up. The Levites, the priests are all organized. So why did Solomon wait till the fourth year of his reign to uh, build and begin building the temple? I don't think that Solomon was delaying. I don't think that's it at all. But I think for the first three years that Solomon was getting his administration in place and he was making additional preparations um, that needed to be done. Uh, For the building of the temple and we saw part of that preparation last week when he wrote a letter to harm the king of Tyre saying listen harm you know that my father wanted to build a temple but um, he wasn't going to do it so I'm going to build the Lord a magnificent temple to bring glory and honor to him. And so would you please send skilled workers and craftsmen to us and cedar logs and cypress logs to us to help build the temple. And so that's part of the arrangements that were being made that Solomon is doing. And now in the fourth year of his reign, we see that Solomon begins to build the temple. But I think that you and I, that we can make application for us tonight because sometimes in doing the work of the Lord, that it doesn't happen as fast as we would like it to. When it comes to us individually, when it perhaps comes to our families, when it comes to this church family, you know, there's nothing wrong with making goals and, and desiring to, to you know, really move forward in, in what God has put on your heart. But sometimes the Lord will take his time in preparing us and in doing that work in us before he really begins to work through us and and really present us in what it is that he's called us to do. For example, in Leviticus chapter 8, you see that the priest all through that chapter you see that the priest there was preparation for them to minister. They were anointed by oil. It speaks of the Holy Spirit. They were washed and, and how we need to be washed with the water of the word. All these preparations that were being done they would actually have to stay in the tabernacle for a certain amount of time and it's important for us that we be in this place that we're growing in the word of God that you are growing as you study God's word through your own devotion. So there's always that preparation and then chapter 9 lives. Leviticus, there's that presentation of the priest. And one of the things that I have found out in my years of ministry, whether it comes with me personally or with my family or with you know the ministry here at Calvary Chapel, that I'm the kind of person that I want things to happen right away. I want things to happen yesterday. And when you know I'm moving forward and there's something on my heart man, I want to go for it, and I want to do it. But sometimes the Lord just kind of takes his time in working through me and those things that he's put on my heart and and, and what has taken place. He's never in a hurry, but his timing is perfect. I want to encourage you that are here that perhaps the Lord has put something on your heart, maybe a ministry or, or as you're growing in the Lord, that remember that the Lord, that He's going to do it in His timing. You don't have to fret. You don't have to worry. You don't have to, to be upset about it. Uh, God's timing is not our timing, but God will be faithful to complete that work that He's begun in us. And one of the verses that has really brought comfort and, and rest to me in my life is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that says that, that being confident of this very thing, as Paul writes, that he who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion. And I don't have to be upset and worry and think, Lord, why is you know, this not happening as fast as I want it to? But I know that the work that he has begun, that he's going to finish it. Paul would go on to write in the book of Philippians that it's God that works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasures. He puts that on your heart, his will for you, and then he will enable you to do that work as well so we can rest in that promise and we can rest what he's doing in you know our lives personally in our families and in this ministry as well. So sometimes the doing the work of the Lord that it doesn't happen as fast as we would like it. So Solomon he begins in the 4th year of his reign, but now he's going to lay the foundation and really uh, we get an overall general description of the temples. We continue on here. Verse 3 this is the foundation which Solomon laid for building the house of God. The length was 60 cubits. By cubits, according to the former measure, and with twenty cubits. And I think that a lot of you know that a, a cubit. We don't know exactly um, how long that was, but most scholars suggest that is about eighteen inches. It's about the length of your finger to your elbow, and that is about for most of us about eighteen inches. Matter of fact, um, if I'm fishing and I catch a, a, a fish, and I'm wondering how big is this fish, and I don't have my tape measure with me. From the tip of my finger right here is 17 inches. So I know that I can measure it that way. So about 18 inches is um, from the tip of your finger to your elbow. That's a cubit that they believe um, is the measurement here of this description of the temple. And so as we see here that the temple is about 90 feet long and 30 feet wide it is twice the size of the tabernacle now you recall that in the tabernacle the lord would come to moses there in the book of exodus and the lord initiated building that tabernacle moses i want you to take an offering from the children of israel build a tabernacle After the pattern that I'm going to show you, Moses. And so Moses built that tabernacle after the pattern that was shown to him. And the tabernacle out there in the wilderness was a very simple tent-like structure. And uh, we see that it had two small rooms, uh, the holy place and the most holy place. Well here the temple we're going to see it still has two rooms but it's going to be more grand. It's going to be bigger as we see here that the dimensions are twice as big as the tabernacle. We're going to see that there isn't one menorah that's in uh, the temple. There's going to be ten. There isn't one shoebread table. There's going to be ten. And you know, at first, when I first read that about the temple, I thought, boy, Solomon really went out and grandiose and, and um, you know, just went overboard. Not one menorah, but ten of, of those menorahs and ten shoebread tables and the lavers and the altars that are huge that we're going to read about here in just a little bit. But one of the keys that we need to remember that in First Chronicles chapter 28, verse 12, that David was shown the pattern to the temple. So, this isn't just Solomon trying to build this big project, you know, to make a memorial after him or whatever. They are being led by the Spirit of God. David would be the one that would make the plans for the temple as he was led by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit and also in organizing the priests and the Levites. So this is according to what God had planned in the building of the temple. And it was a magnificent building. We're going to see that gold is going to be laid all over the temple and used to, to cover the temple. And, um, and we're going to see the fine artistic work Uh, is going to be done as we continue in this. Um, But the whole idea was not to bring glory and honor to Solomon or to David, but to bring glory and honor to the Lord. And that's what their desire was. So we need to keep that in mind as we go through that. And we think, wow, all this gold and silver. Verse 4, the festival, that is the entrance that was in front of the sanctuary, was 20 cubits long across the width of the house. And height was 120. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. The larger room he paneled with cypress, which he overlaid with fine gold. And he carved palm trees and chain work on it and verse 6 tells us he decorated the house with precious stones for beauty and the gold was from parvarum and he also overlaid the house of the beams the doorposts, its walls and the doors with gold and he carved cherubim on the walls so in this General description as given here: uh, the temple has two rooms, of course, the the holy place and then the holy of holies that we're going to read about here as we continue. The festival is the entrance hall in front of the temple, and um, it had um, it was about thirty feet wide and about fifteen feet deep or long. First uh, Kings chapter six verse five tells us that there were all kinds of side chambers. Uh, surrounding the temple and connected to the temple that were thir- three stories high and that there was a large courtyard surrounding the whole structure. There was much gold that was overlaying the temple. Sometimes when we think about ancient buildings, and this building here is about 3,000 know, years ago, and we think about you know, they were just made of stone and a little bit of metal and things like this, we're going to see that this building had floors and walls overlaid with gold. And he got the gold from Parvim, and no one knows exactly where that is. This is the only reference here, uh, of Parvam, that is, of where this gold came from. No one has any idea where this place is. There's no other mention of it in the scriptures. So if you can ever find this place, you might just find some gold there because they took a lot of gold out of here as we're going to see as we continue on. So everything, as he is overlaying um, things, uh, the house with precious stones for beauty, the gold uh, overlaid the house, the beams, the doorposts, the walls, Verse eight, and he made the most holy place, that is the holy of holies. Its length was according to the width of the house, twenty cubits, and its width, twenty cubits. He overlaid it with six hundred talents of fine gold. The weight of the nails was fifty shekels of gold, and he overlaid the upper area with gold. Verse ten tells us, in the most holy place, he made two cherubim. Fastened by carving, and overlaid them with gold. And the wings of the cherubim were twenty cubits in overall length. One wing of the one cherubim was five cubits, touching the wall of the room, and the other wing was five cubits, touching the wing of the other cherub. And one wing of the other cherub was five cubits, touching the wall of the room, and the other wing also was five cubits, touching the wing of the other cherub. Verse thirteen tells us the wings of these cherubim spanned twenty cubits overall. They stood on their feet, and they faced inwards and he made the veil of blue purple crimson fine linen and wove cherubim into it so here in uh, as we continue reading the the holy of holies also known as the most holy place also is referred to in the scripture as the inner sanctuary it was a, a 30 foot cube completely overlaid with gold and had two large cherubim that as you went behind the veil that is spoken of in verse 14, the veil of blue and purple and crimson and fine linen. And it's interesting you can look at these colors that it speaks of. And blue speaks of it's the color of heaven, and purple is the color of royalty. And and it's kind of interesting to do a little bit of a study in all those things. But this, this veil, it wasn't just like a bed sheet or something. This was a thick veil that separated the two rooms, the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies or the inner sanctuary, overlaid all with gold. And then as you went behind the veil, there were two cherubim um, that were about 15 feet high and the wings would expand um, and touch each other from you know, the wall uh, to the middle and then the other cherubim, his wings, from the middle of the room over to the other wall. It's made of pure gold, and the cherubim, um, of course, symbolize the guardian angels of the throne of God. When you read as Ezekiel, Isaiah, uh, those who had a vision of the the throne of God, the angelic beings, the cherubim are the guardian angels of the throne of God. And also, we know that the Ark of the Covenant, the one furnishing that was in the Holy of Holies, that was the only thing that was in the Holy of Holies, that wooden box and on top of it was a lid made of pure gold and it was also had two cherubim on it and The Lord said, as Moses would construct the Ark of the Covenant and it was put into the Holy of Holies, that the high priest would go in and make atonement. He would sprinkle the blood on that lid that was called the mercy seat as he made atonement for the sins of the nation. Now, again, the only one that was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, as you know, was the high priest. He was the only one. And he was only allowed to go behind that veil that is spoken of here in verse 14. Once a year for a short time to make atonement for the sins of the nation. That's where the tangible presence of God was. The Shekinah glory of God was in the Holy of Holies. And and, um, and God told Moses that between the cherubim, the mercy seat, is where I'm going to meet with my people. But here's the thing. There was a problem with the Old Testament covenant that the book of Hebrews brings out very clearly for you and for me that I hope that that we really kind of ponder and think about. You see, the Old Testament had a weakness. And the weakness is that it didn't bring the people into the presence of God. And the book and the author of Hebrews really brings that out. And the reason that he does is because That book was written to the Hebrew believers there in the first century that were really missing Judaism and being persecuted and missing the temple, you know, worship and sacrifices and all that that they had been a part of. They came out of that, and they were wondering, maybe we should go back to that. Um, you You know, maybe, you know, it would be easier because of the persecution that we're going through or we're missing all the, the ceremonies and they were ostracized from their families. All these things were taking place. So the author of the book of Hebrews, which could have been Paul or Apollos or, or Barnabas, we don't know for sure, but the ultimate author is the Holy Spirit. And the point is made that Jesus is superior. He's superior to any other religious you know, leader. He's superior to any angels. He... Uh, ministers in you know a heavenly sanctuary his priesthood is superior is more superior than the levitical priesthood and jesus because he died on the cross as the author of the book of hebrews just kind of is making this case all throughout that the the sacrifices of bulls and goats and animals was not enough to completely take away our sins. It was a kofar. It it made atonement. That's what that Hebrew word is for atonement, kofar. It was a covering of our sins until Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and died for our sins once and for all. So all the sacrifices of the bulls and the goats and the lambs and the doves that took place for 1,500 years until Jesus went to the cross, which was just a covering. It wasn't enough to completely take away the sins of mankind. And that's what the author of Hebrews is bringing out. And because of the blood of Jesus, that we can come with confidence into the Holy of Holies, Hebrews chapter 10. And we can have fellowship with God. And we can uh, uh, intimacy with God. And we can talk with Him, not just once a year, but any time we want. We can stay as long as we want. And we can come as many times as we want. And if Aaron was here, and if Eleazar, the high priest, if they could hear that, that, wow, you guys on this side of the cross... Because Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, you got complete forgiveness of sin, and now you can come into the Holy of Holies. You see, only the high priest was allowed for a short time in the Old Testament covenant. It didn't bring the people into the presence of God. It didn't take away completely the sins of mankind. It was Jesus Christ that has done all that. And we can come with confidence, not in our own confidence, but because of what he did on Calvary's cross. And now we can come into the throne room of grace and we can talk with our Father. That's why Jesus came, for forgiveness of sin, that we have the hope of heaven and right relationship with the Father. And I pray that we would see that and really ponder that as a marvelous privilege and opportunity that we have to be able to come... And, and have fellowship with the Lord and to the Holy of Holies because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's why in the book of Matthew, in chapter 27, verse 51, after Jesus cried out, It is finished, i paid the price, and I've done the work. That it says that in that second temple, that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, that it rent in two from top to bottom. And can you imagine those priests that if there was any there in the temple, that all of a sudden there is an earthquake and all of a sudden that veil rips and it comes down and they could see into the Holy of Holies for the very first time. How amazing that must have been for them. And you see the Lord was declaring at that time, it's now you can come into my presence. And now you can have fellowship with me. Because my son died on the cross at Calvary. May we never lose that in our hearts because over time, you know, as Christians, we can get busy with so many things in our lives and schedules and, and we're going to be ending summer here and school's going to start and, and everything else. And what my hope and prayer is is that we would take the time to go into the Holy of Holies and spend time with the Lord. How important it is, especially in the day in which we're living in, that we do that. And that we would see that as a great opportunity and privilege. And so here is, um, you know, this, this this description of the Holy of Holies through verse 14 and then verse 15. And also he made in front of the temple two pillars, 35 cubits high, and the capital that was on the top of each of them was five cubits. And he made wreaths of chain work in the inner sanctuary and put them on top of the pillars. And he made 100 pomegranates and put them on the wreaths of chain work and verse 17 tells us then he set up the pillars before the temple and on uh, one on the right hand and the other on the left he called the name of one on the right hand Jachin and the name of the one on the left Boaz so here in front of the temple were these two pillars 35 cubits high and first kings chapter 7 tells us that these pillars were made of bronze and they were named Jachin and Boaz and Jachin means he shall establish Boaz means in him is strength. God is the one that establishes us, isn't he? The world doesn't establish us. Sometimes we think, boy, I am established. If I get this job or have this relationship, uh, I have these possessions, then I'll really be established. You're going to be established as you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, as you surrender to the Lord, as you desire to live for him and please him. That's when we're established. And then he is the one that strengthens us, doesn't he? what my prayer is that you would realize that you're established as you have a close relationship with the Lord, as you desire to serve Him, as you desire to walk with Him, as you desire to please Him. And as you are established in Him, then He's the one that's going to strengthen you. But also what my prayer is, is that this house of God, that people that come into this place, that they can hear the gospel message, they can hear the truth of God's word, they can be established, and then also that they can be strengthened as well. They can be strengthened because they're being ministered to and loved on and, and that we're reaching out to them. That's what my prayer is, that this temple would be that place and how that needs to be a place for our community, for a lost and dying world, because out there people are in darkness And people are lost. And there is no joy. There's no hope in their lives. But as they come to this house of God, they may be established in the gospel and the truth of God's word, and they can be strengthened as well. We need to be strengthened. We need to encourage each other. We need to be praying for each other, especially as I keep saying in the days in which we're living in the perilous times. And these are perilous times. And I don't think right now as we see the trend, I pray for a revival. God's not through yet. He, he's still working. And I pray that there is revival in our nation and in our community, and I pray for that. But I also see a dangerous trend that that we are in a deep, deep and fast decline spiritually and morally in our society and in our nation. And it's going to get more difficult for you and me who desire to be established and stand in the truth of God's word that says, you know what, I want to live for the Lord, I'm going to stand for him. So He will establish us. He will strengthen us. We need to pray for each other. And we need to pray for families that are here and, and for those requests that come on the prayer chain. You know, one of the things that I ask is that you would pray for me, that you would pray for my family, that you would pray for the leadership here, that you would pray for the staff and the volunteers here, because God is doing a marvelous work. And we need his strength. And we need his wisdom. You know, I believe that God's doing a marvelous work. He he has been here at Calvary Chapel, but he wants to continue that. And I get excited as I think about that. But I'll tell you the truth on this as well. And I don't say this to put undue burden or to be a bummer or anything like this. But I know that as you are coming and growing in the word of God, that you're going to be a target for the enemy. And I know that as we are being used of the Lord, as we have the radio program that's going out throughout northern Colorado, and as the gospel and the, the teaching of God's word is going out daily in the radio broadcast, that me and this church is going to be a target. I just got a pastor Ed down in Aurora just made an announcement that Grace FM is going to expand So we're going to be down on the air in the Colorado Springs area now starting in October, November. There's a lot of people down there from Monument down in Colorado Springs, Grace FM 101.7. So if you're down there, and I called them and I said, you know, uh, how's that going to work? They said, we're going to take the signal that we have here and just send it down there. So we're going to be on at 3.30 in the afternoons down in Colorado Springs. And I know the enemy isn't happy about that. He isn't happy that we're teaching our children the truth of God's word. He isn't happy that that we brought chess over here. And what we desire as a, a ministry is to minister to our young people wherever they're at. And to strengthen them in the Lord and get them established in the Lord. I'll tell you what, the enemy is ticked off that we are investing in our young people. And as David said to Solomon, that you be walking in the ways of the Lord, that you may leave a godly heritage an inheritance for your children and for your children's children. And as we are determined to do that, and God is working in other ways, people are getting saved, people are coming and growing in God's Word, that as you're growing, as, as you're being used to the Lord, You will be a target, I will be a target, and this church will be a target, and we need to pray. And we need to always remember that it's the Lord that establishes us, and the Lord is our strength, isn't he? That we don't get sidetracked and think, well, our strength is in this, or our strength is in that. Our strength is in the Lord alone. And that we would be ones to encourage each other, pray for each other, bless one another. So I ask for your prayers. So here were these two pillars here as we look at it. And then some of the furnishings quickly. Chapter 4 as we read in verse 1. Moreover, he made a bronze altar. 20 cubits was the length and 20 cubits its width and 10 cubits its height. The word altar uh, or the idea behind the Hebrew word altar is killing place. It was a place of sacrifice. And and it, the people would come into the outer court and you would come to that altar and um, our altar, Altar, of course, for the Christian is the cross where Jesus died for our sins. And this altar that that we're reading about is kind of like a big barbecue. It was 30 feet by 30 feet, 15 feet high. And they could do a lot of animals, the sacrifices on this altar. In verse 2, then he made the sea of cast bronze, 10 cubits, one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was 5 cubits. And a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. And under it was the likeness of oxen encircling all around, ten to a cubit, all around the sea, the oxen cast in two rows when it was cast. And it stood on twelve oxen, three looking towards the north, three looking towards the west, three looking towards the south, and three looking towards the east. The sea was set uh, upon them, and all their back parts pointed towards them. And so we see here the sea of cast bronze or bronze labored that, that was fifteen feet across, and For you geometry students, that's 45 feet in circumference. Held 15,000 gallons of water. It's like a small swimming pool. The altar speaks of Christ's sacrifice. Here, the, the labor that is here for the washing of the priests, it speaks how we've been washed. We've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been washed by the water of the word, haven't we? Jesus would say to his disciples that you are clean through the word that I've spoken to you. As we go throughout our day, you know, there's all this stuff around us and noise and, and many of you, you come home from work or or your day and just the attitudes that you had to deal with with people at work and the language and everything else. We come home and we feel kind of dusty and earthy and dirty and all of this because all the, the thing that, you know, we've been a part of and and the things that we've had to listen to or whatever. And that's why it's important that we wash ourselves with the water of the word. That we're taking in the word of God to be refreshed and renewed and cleaned and and to keep us um, to where um, we are just um, staying close to the Lord in that way. So here was um, the uh, Sea of casts. Bronze and bronze laver, uh, it's hand breadth thick and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup. Verse five like a lily blossom is contained three thousand baths. Verse six gives us additional basins used for washing and cleaning as he made ten lavers and put five on the right side, five on the left, to wash in them such things as they offered for the burnt offerings. They would wash in them, but the sea was for the priest to wash in. And then he made ten lampstands of gold according to their design and set them in the temple, five on the right side and five on the left. And and he also made ten tables and placed them in the temple, five on the right side and five on the left. And they made 100 bowls of gold. So there in the temple, in the holy place, was going to be not one 7 branch menorah, and that's kind of what it would look like. That's a little show and tell here. Um, 7 branch golden menorah that uh, had bowls on top of it. And uh, the priest would fill up each one of these bowls with oil, and then he made sure it was lit. It was the source of light that was there in the temple. And um, and they would uh, make sure that the bowls were full and the wicks floating around in there and uh, that the menorah would continue to burn. So that was to represent that Israel was to be a light to the other nations and uh, also It speaks of Jesus being the light of the world. Then there was also ten shoe bread tables uh, that would hold twelve loaves of bread, the holy bread, um, that represented the twelve tribes of Israel. And they would be replaced every Sabbath. Also, we know that it represents that Jesus, it speaks of Jesus, because everything in the tabernacle, everything in the temple points to Jesus. It speaks of Jesus. There was only one door that went into the tabernacle. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the one way to the presence of God. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. So all these things that you can look at and and you can see how it speaks of Jesus. The hundred bowls here were used for collecting the blood of sacrifices which then would be used to be sprinkled about the altar in service of atonement. As we uh, finish up here in verse 9, Furthermore, he made the court of the priests and the great court of the doors for the courts, and he overlaid these doors with bronze, and he set the sea on the right side towards the southeast. So the court of the priests, also known as the inner court, the court of the temple, the only the priests were allowed to go there. If you were of the children of Israel, you could go to the outer court, present your offering. But you could not go into this inner court. You could not go into the temple. Only the priests were allowed to do that. And the Holy of Holies, only the high priest, right? So we kind of getting familiar with how it was all set up. Huram made the pots, verse 11, and shovels and the bowls. So Huram finished doing the work that he was to do for King Solomon in the house of God, the two pillars and the bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the two pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates for the two networks, verse 13, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on the pillars. He also made carts and the lavers on the cart, the seed and the 12 oxen under it. He also made the pots and the shovels and the forks and all the articles, Huram, his master craftsman, made the brownish bronze for King Solomon in the house of the Lord. And in the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds between Sukkoth and Saradah. And Solomon had these articles made in such great abundance that the weight of bronze was not determined. Verse 19 Thus, Solomon, that is, had all the furnishings made for the house of God, the altar of gold. Did Tables on which was the showbread, the lampstands with their lamps of pure gold to burn in the prescribed manner in front of the inner sanctuary with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, of purest gold, the trimmers, the bowls, the the ladles, and the censers of pure gold. As for the entry, the sanctuary is inner doors to the most holy place where the doors of the main hall of the temple were gold. In chapter 5, so all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished i want to close with this thought it tells us here that the 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 master craftsman that would come down from uh, lebanon to help build this temple with such detailed work that was being done it tells us in verse 11 that Hiram uh, he finished doing the work that he was to do for king solomon chapter 5 verse 1 solomon finished the work of the temple you know what my prayer is He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. That you would, every day of your life, just say, Lord, whatever you have for me, that when my days come to an end, that I'm able to say that I finished the work. Moses, at the end of the book of Exodus, it says that Moses finished the work. We know that Paul the Apostle, that we're going to read in chapter 20 of the book of Acts, he's going to say that I'm determined to finish my race with joy. And at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he would say that uh, my departure is at hand, Timothy. And I've kept the faith. And I fought the good fight. And I finished my race. It was Jesus right before he would be arrested and go to the cross for you and for me, he was praying to the Father. And he said, I have finished the work that you've given me to do, Father. And what I hope and pray is that we would be ones, that yes, we're going to rest in what God is doing in our lives sovereignly. But may we finish the task that God has called us to do. And just relying on Him and trusting in Him. But also having that charge that's been given to us, that determination, in other words, just submission to him. Lord, finish the work that you're doing. And I know that you will. But every day just being sensitive to his leading and what he wants to do with you and through you. And that's my prayer, that Lord, please finish the work. Because there's a lot of things that can pull us aside and distract us or discourage us where we feel like quitting, feel like giving up. I'm not doing any good, Lord. Let him finish the work that he wants to do in your life, where he has you and the gifts he's given to you and how he wants to use you. You trust him. You look to him. You follow after him. And what my prayer is that all of us, when he takes us home, that we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant." I was listening online to the memorial service of, as I t- told you, that we've been praying for a pastor a friend of mine, John Michaels, who went home to be with the Lord, a great man of God who was a wonderful pastor, loved his people, and did great missionary work, and did um, all kinds of work in the Philippines and South America and all these things, and and just what was being said of, of his life, as you know, so I was listening to it, that he was always one. That when the call went out, he would go. But now the Lord has said, come. It's time to come home. And what I hope and pray for us is when that time comes, that we can say that I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith and I have finished my race. So Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for Lord, your word and what you've shown us tonight. The encouragement. Lord, I thank you for your truth. Thank you for those who are willing to come out on a Wednesday night and just hear your word and be here to fellowship and Lord, to be one that takes in the word of God. Thank you for the washing of the water of the word.